This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read and recorded by Betsy Bush, Marquette, Michigan, October 2006. Gawain and the Green Knight, a fairy tale, by Charlton Minor Lewis. Preface Arms and the man I sing, not as of old the Mantuan bard his mighty verse unrolled, but in such humbler strains as may beseem light changes rung on a fantastic theme. My tale is ancient, but the sense is new replete with monstrous fictions, yet half true, and if you'll follow till the story's done, I promise much instruction and some fun. Canto One, The Green Knight King Arthur and his court were blithe and gay in high-towered Camelot on Christmas Day, for all the table round were back again, at peace with God, and with their fellow-men. Their shields hung idly on the pictured wall, their blood-stained banners decked the festal hall, light footsteps rustling on the rush-strewn floors, and laughter rippling down long corridors, attested minds at ease and hearts at play, rude Mars unharnessed for love's holiday. In the great hall the Christmas feast was done, the level sunbeams from the setting sun stretched through the mullioned casements to the wall and wove fantastic shadows over all. The revelry was hushed. In tranquil ease, the warriors grouped themselves by twos and threes about the dames and damsels of the court and chattered careless words of small import. But in an alcove, unobserved apart, Young Gawain sat with Lady Elfinhart. In Arthur's court no goodlier knight than he wore shirt of mail or Cupid's panoply. And Elfinhart to Gawain's eager eyes, of all heaven's treasures seemed the goodliest prize. Now daylight faded, and the twilight gloom deepened the stillness in the vaulted room. Save where upon the hearth a fitful glow blushed from the embers as the fire burned low. There is a certain subtle twilight mood, when two hearts meet in a dim solitude, that thrills the soul in to the finger-tips, and brings the heart's dear secrets to the lips. In Gawain's corner, as the shades grew thicker, four eyes waxed brighter, and two pulses quicker. Ten minutes more of quiet talk unbroken, and heaven alone can tell what might be spoken. But it was not to be, for fate's unequal compelled, but this anticipates the sequel. Just in the nick of time, King Arthur rose from his sedate postprandial repose, and called for lights. Along the shadowy aisles his pages' footsteps pattered o'er the tiles, speeding to do his errand, and at once four tapers flickered from each silver sconce. The scene was changed, the dreamer's dream dispelled. 
and what might else have been his fate withheld from Gawain's grasp? So may one touch of chance shatter the fragile fabric of romance, and all the heart's desire, the joy, the trouble, flash to oblivion with the bursting bubble. But Arthur, on his kingly dais seat, felt nothing of the passion and the heat that fire young blood. He raised his warlike head, and glancing moodily around him, said, So have ye feasted well, my knights, this day, and filled your hearts with revel and with play. But to my mind that day is basely spent, which passes by without accomplishment of some bright deed of arms or chivalry. We rust in indolence, as well not be, as be the minions of an idle court, where all is gallantry and girlish sport. Some bold adventure let our thoughts devise, to stir our courage and to cheer our eyes. And lo, while yet he spoke, from far away in the thick shroud of the departed day, upon the frosty air of evening born, came the faint challenge of a fairy horn. King Arthur started up in mild surprise, while knights and dames looked round with questioning eyes. And each to other spoke some hurried word, as, Did you hear it? What was that I heard? But well they knew, for you must understand, that Camelot lay close to fairyland, and the wild blast of fairy horns, once known, is straightway recognized as soon as blown, being a sound unique, unearthly shrill, between a screech-owl and a whippoorwill. The mischief is that no one e'er can tell whether such heralding bodes ill or well. The ladies of the palace looked faint fear, dreading some perilous adventure near. For peril can the bravest spirits move, when threatening not ourselves but those we love. But Lady Elfinhart clapped hands in glee, in sooth no sentimentalist seemed she, and cried, Now brave Sir Gawain, oh what fun! Succor us, save us, else we are undone. Show us the prowess of your arm this night. I never saw a tilt by candlelight. Gaily she spoke, and seemed all unconcerned, and yet a curious watcher might have learned from a slight quaver in her laughter free to doubt the frankness of her flippancy. Gawain, bewildered, looked the other way, and wondered what she meant, for in that day the ready wit of man was under muzzle, and woman's heart was still an unsolved puzzle. And Gawain, though in valor next to none, wished that her heart had been a tenderer one. His sword was out for any foe on earth, and yet to face death for a lady's mirth seemed scarce worth while. What honor bade healed due, but would have liked to see a tear or two. While thus he pondered came a sudden burst of high-pitched fairy horn calls like the first, 
but nearer, clearer, deadlier than before, blown seemingly from just outside the door. The casements shook, the taper lights all trembled, the bravest knight's dismay was ill-dissembled. And as all sprang from one accord to win their swords and shields, stern combat to begin, the great doors shot their bolts and opened slowly in. And now my laboring muse is hard beset, for something followed such as never yet was writ or sung by human voice or hand, save those that tell old tales from fairyland. Miracles do not happen. Tis plain sense, if you italicized the present tense. But in those days, as rare old Chaucer tells, all Britain was fulfilled of miracles. So as I said, the great doors opened wide, in rushed a blast of winter from outside, and with it galloping on the empty air, a great green giant on a great green mare, plunged like a tempest cleaving thunderbolt, and struck four-footed with an earthquake's jolt, plump on the hearthstone. There the uncouth wit sat greenly, laughing at the strange affright that paled all cheeks and opened wide all eyes, till after the first shock of quick surprise the people circled round him, still in awe, and circling stared, and this is what they saw. Cassock and hood and hose, of plushy sheen, like close-cut grass upon a bowling-green, covered his stature, from his verdant toes to the green brows that topped his emerald nose. His beard was glossy like unripened corn, his eyes shot sparklets like the polar morn. But like in hue unto that deep sea-green, wherewith must shine those gems of ray serene, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bare. Green was his raiment, green his monstrous mare. He rode unarmed, uncorsleted, unshielded, except that in his huge right hand he wielded a frightful battle-axe with blade as green as coppery rust, but the long edge shone keen. Such was the stranger, and he turned his head from one side to the other, and then said, with gentle voice, most like a summer breeze that rustles through the leaves of the green trees, So this is Arthur's court, my noble lord, you said just now you felt a trifle bored, and wished instead of dancing, feasting, flirting, your gallant warriors might be exerting their puissance upon some worthier thing. The wish, my lord, was worthy of a king. It pleased me. Here I am, and I intend to serve your fancy as a faithful friend. I bring adventure, no hard, tedious quest, but merely what I call a merry jest. Let some good knight, the doughiest of you all, swing this my battle-axe, and let it fall, on whatsoever part of me he will. I will abide the blow, and hold me still. But let him, just a twelve-month from this day, 
Come to me, if by any means he may, and let me, if I live, pay back my best, as he pays me. What think you of the jest? He said, and made a courteous bow, the while lightening his features with a bright green smile, as when June breezes, after rain-clouds pass, ripple in sunlight o'er the unmown grass. The jest seemed fair indeed, but none the less no knight showed any undue forwardness to seize the offer. Some with laughter free daffed it aside, while others carelessly strolled to the farthest corners of the hall, as if they had not heard his words at all, and whistled with an air of idle ease, or studied figures in the tapestries. Not so Sir Gawain. Vexed in mind he stood with downcast eyes, and knew not what he would. Trained in the school of chivalry to prize, his honor as the light of his dear eyes, he held his life, his fortunes, everything, in sacred trust for knighthood and his king. And in the battlefield or tilting-yard he met his foe full-fronted, and struck hard. But now it seemed a foolish thing to throw one's whole life to the fortune of a blow. True valor breathes not in the braggart vaunt. True honor takes no shame from idle taunt. So let this wizard, if he wants to, scoff. Why should our hero have his head cut off? While thus Sir Gawain, wrapped in thought intense, debated honor versus common sense, the stranger knight was casting his green glance around the circle throng, until by chance he met the eyes of Lady Elfinhart. And did she flush? And did the green knight start? Surely a quiver twinkled in each eye. And what of that? It need not signify. Beneath his glance a brave man well might flush. What wonder, then, that a fair maid should blush? And as for him, no man that ever loved Could look upon her loveliness unmoved. Could I but picture her, ah, you would deem My tale the figment of a poet's dream. And if you saw her, could such bliss be given, You'd think yourself in dreamland or in heaven. Not the red rapture of new-weakened roses, When morning dew their soul of love uncloses, Roses that must be wooed, nor may be won, Save by the prince of lovers, the warm sun. Not the fair lily, nor the violet shy, Whose heart's love lurks deep in her still-blue eye, Nor any flower, the loveliest and the best, can image to you half the charm compressed in those dear eyes, those lips, nay, every part that made that sum of witcheries elfin heart. Her face was a dim dream of shadowy light, like misty moonbeams on the fields of night, and in her voice sweet nature's sweetest tunes sang the glad song of twenty cloudless Junes. Her raiment, nay, go, reader, if you please, 
to some sage treatise on antiquities, whence writers of historical romances cull old embroideries for their new-spun fancies. I care not for the trivial nor the fleeting. Beneath her dress a woman's heart was beating, the rhythm of love's eternal eloquence, and I confess to you in confidence, though flowers have grown a thousand years above her, unseen, unknown, with all my soul I love her. From these digressions upon love and glory, tis time we were returning to our story. I only meant in a few words to tell you, for fear my heroine's conduct should repel you, that if she jests, for instance, out of season, perhaps there is a good substantial reason. Sir Gawain, had he seen the stranger wink, and seen the lady blushing, you may think, might have been spared a most unhappy lot. Perhaps you're right, but peradventure not. I give you but a hint, for half the art of narrative is holding back a part. And if without reserve I gave my best in the first canto, who would read the rest? But now Sir Gawain, with a troubled eye, looked up and saw his lady standing by. Quoth he, And if this conjurer unblessed win no acceptance of his bitter jest, how then in after days shall Arthur's court confront the calumny and foul report of idle tongues? The wrath in Gawain's eyes hashed for an instant. Then, in humbler wise, he spoke on. Yet, God grant, I be not blind. Where honor lights the way, for to my mind true honor bids us shun the devil's den, to fight God's battles in the world of men. Who takes this challenge up, I doubt will rue it. Quoth Elfinhart, I'll like to see you do it. She laughed a gay laugh, but by hard constraint, then turned and hid her face, all pale and faint, as one might be who stabs and turns the knife in the warm heart of one more dear than life. She turned, and Gawain saw not, but he heard, and felt his heart-strings tighten at her word. Nay, lady, if you wish it I will try, be your least wish my will, although I die. Yet one thing, if I may, I fain would ask, before I take the venture, if this task prove fateful as it threatens, do you care? Perhaps, said Elfinhart, you do not dare. Lightly she laughed and scoffing tossed her head, yet spoke as one who knew not what she said, with random words and with quick-taken breath, then turned again, ere that same look of death should steal upon her and betray her heart, despite all stratagems of woman's heart. And Gawain heard, but saw not, and the night descended on him, and his face grew white with grief and passion. When all else is lost, the brave man gives life to, nor counts the cost. I dreamt, he murmured to himself, and dreaming I took for truth what was but sweetest seeming. 
my waking eyes find naught in life to keep. I take the venture, and so back to sleep. By this, the stranger had at last become tired of long waiting, and of sitting dumb upon his charger. So with greenest leer he vented his impatience in a sneer. Is this, he said, the glorious table round? And is its glory naught but empty sound? Braggarts! I put your bluster to the test, and find you quail before a merry jest. Then the great king himself stood up in ire, with clenched hand raised, and eyes that gleamed dark fire, and fronting the green knight he cried, Forbear! For by my sword Excalibur I swear. Whate'er thou be, thou shalt not carry hence, unscathed the memory of thine insolence. Such jests as thine please not. Yet even so I take thine axe. Kneel thou, and take my blow. Across the green knight's features there was seen to pass a fleeting shade of deeper green, whether of disappointment or resentment none knew, but straight a smile of bright contentment followed, as though the throng of dazed beholders he saw Sir Gawain thrust his sturdy shoulders. The stranger winked at Elfinhart once more, well pleased, and Gawain knelt down on the floor. A boon, he cried, a boon, my lord and king, if ever yet in any little thing these hands have served thee, hear my last request, let me adventure this mad monster's jest. King Arthur shook his head in dumb denial, loth to withdraw his own hand from the trial, and leave the vengeance that himself had vowed. But all the people called to him aloud, Sir Gawain, let Sir Gawain strike the blow! And Guinevere the queen besought him low to leave this venture to the lesser man. He yielded, and the merry jest began. The visitor, dismounting, made a bow to Arthur, then to all the court. And now, said he to Gawain, wheresoever you choose to strike your blow, strike on. I'll not refuse. Head, shoulders, chest, or waist. I, little wreck. Where shall it be? Quoth Gawain, in the neck. So Gawain took the axe. The stranger knelt before him on the hearth and loosed his belt and threw back his green cassock and his hood, to give his foe the fairest mark he could. Then thus to Gawain, Ready, but remember, to come the twenty-fifth of next December, and take from me the self-same stroke again. And where, asked Gawain, may I find you then? We'll speak of that, please, when you've struck your blow. For if I can't speak, then you need not go. He chuckled softly to himself, then turned, and waited for the blow, all unconcerned. Not so the knights and ladies of the court. They pushed and craned their necks to see the sport. Not from the lust of blood, for few expected to see bloodshed, 
or the green knight dissected, but knowing that some marvel was in store, unparalleled in all Arthurian lore, and fairly filled with wide-eyed wonderment. But Lady Elfinhart stayed not. She went into the alcove where we saw her first, and laid her sweet face in her arms, and burst into, but none could tell, unless by peeping, whether she shook with laughter or with weeping. And Gawain rubbed his arms, his chest he beat, then grasped the battle-axe and braced his feet, and swung the ponderous weapon high in air, and brought it down like lightning, fair and square, upon the stranger's neck. The axe flashed through, cutting the green knight cleanly right in two, and split the hard stone floor like kindling wood. The head dropped off. Out gushed the thick hot blood, like— I can't find the simile I want, but let us say a flood of cream de menthe. And then the warriors standing round about sent up from fifty throats a mighty shout, as when o'er blood-sprent fields the long cheers roll, cacophonous for him who kicks a goal. "'Oh, Gawain, well done, Gawain!' they all cried. But straight the tumult and the shouting died, and deadly pallor overspread each face, for the knight's body stood up in its place, and stepping nimbly forward seized the head that lay still on the hearthstone, seeming dead, then vaulted lightly with a careless air back to the saddle of his grass-green mare. He held the head up, and behold, it spoke. My congratulations on that stroke, Sir Gawain. It was delicately done. Our merry little jest is well begun. But look, you fail me not this day next year. At the green chapel by the murmuring mere, I will await you when the sun sinks low, and pay you back full measure, blow for blow. He wheeled about, the doors flew wide once more, the mare's hoofs struck green sparkles from the floor, and with a whirring flash of emerald light, both horse and rider vanished in the night. Then all the lords and ladies rubbed their eyes, and slowly roused themselves from dumb surprise. The great hall echoed once more with the clatter of laughing men's and frightened women's chatter. But Gawain, with the axe in hand, stood still, heedless of what was passing, with no will for life or death, for all that made life dear was fled like summer when the leaves fall sere. And Arthur spoke, misreading Gawain's thought. Heaven send we have not all too dearly bought our evening's pastime, Gawain. You have done as fits a fearless knight, and nobly won. Our thanks in equal measure, with our praise. Be both remembered in the after-days. So spoke the king, and, to confirm his words, from far away in the deep night was heard, once more the fairy-horn call, clear and shrill. It died upon the wind, and all was still. The hour was late. King Arthur rising said, 
good night to all his court, and went to bed. End of Canto One